Well, you all know the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, and one good example of that comes from American history, where just a single glance at this picture would instantly communicate a powerful message. Um, I have in mind a very famous political cartoon created by Benjamin Franklin. And you all would know it if you saw it. It's a picture of a snake cut up into several pieces, the caption reading, join or die. And the simple picture spoke way louder than words, sending a clear message to the American colonies that they had better unite and come together if they were to overcome their adversaries or they would perish. Now, interestingly, this cartoon was first published in 1754 to rally the colonies against the French in the Seven Years' War. Probably didn't know that. But a mere 10 years later, this cartoon would find Second Life as it was then reused, reissued to urge the colonies to unite now against the tyranny of the British. And what would become the Revolutionary War was stirring. If these scattered 13 colonies kept infighting, they'd really stand no chance against Britain. Benjamin Franklin was a master of the printed media, and this slogan was very successful. It captured a self-evident truth that a divided kingdom cannot stand. However, while Franklin gets all the credit for this little piece of American history, as with so many aspects of Western culture, it actually goes back to Jesus. Jesus said it first. Jesus himself once made a similar point. He didn't have the advantage of the printing press, but he painted a picture with his words that has stuck in the minds of his hearers ever since. He said it first, any kingdom divided against itself will fall. A house divided cannot stand. Now, I think these days you often hear this slogan used in reference to the church, the kingdom of God. And so we take it as a lesson for the church. The church must strive for unity or else it will succumb to these outside forces and pressures. And, and that's certainly true. However, just like Franklin's join or die slogan originally had a different purpose, Christ's words originally referred to something else when he uttered the phrase, a house divided will fall, no kingdom divided against itself will stand. At the time, he was actually speaking about the kingdom of Satan, which means, it's true, Jesus recognized that there exists a kingdom of Satan ruling this world set up in opposition to God. But there's more. Jesus didn't make this statement to suggest that's how Satan's kingdom would fall. Sadly, no. The evil one is all too united in evil. That's why he and his forces are so effective. Satan's kingdom will fall, just not from the inside, from the outside. It will fall when Jesus, the true king, overcomes it. For the time being, though, Satan, though thoroughly evil, is still highly intelligent, and that means he's not going to undermine his own rebellion. He's not going to oppose his own work. Satan's kingdom is not a house divided. So we wonder then, what prompted Jesus to make this statement that any kingdom divided against itself will not stand? And that's the shocking part, namely that Christ's words came on the heels of what has to be the most outrageous, inflammatory claim made by his opponents. You know, Jesus was merely going around, doing good, healing people, but at that time, the leaders of Israel had the audacity to sp start spreading the slander that Jesus was not working, that he was not casting out demons by the power of God, but no, rather by the power of Satan. 
They made the claim that he was not spirit-filled, but Satan-filled. That he was not the son of God, but a child of the devil. It really is such unbelievable unbelief as they witnessed all of his signs and wonders. But more than unbelief, it's really demonic. The ironic truth is that the leaders of Israel were themselves acting as agents of Satan at that time. Like Jesus said elsewhere, they were of their father, the devil, the father of lies. But Jesus will be vindicated. He will be ultimately vindicated when he returns. He was vindicated as resurrection. And we're even going to see him vindicated in our text this morning as he speaks to his defense. What they were saying, they were going too far. The slander was going way too far. It had to be addressed. At the very least, he had to testify of what was true. And so we get to see his response to these outrageous claims in this passage this morning. That would be Matthew 12, verses 22 through 30. So take your Bibles, open them. They can follow along with us. It is a longer passage, but Matthew 12, verses 22 through 30. Now, as we go through Matthew 11 and 12, I I know it might sound like a broken record, but the setup is kind of the same each week. In these two chapters, Matthew is cataloging the rising opposition to Jesus. We've seen him teach and preach and heal a lot already, but now he's still doing that. But now each time, Matthew shows us that after he teaches or preaches or heals, well, it invited the scorn of the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus is starting now to face hostility and rejection. Their opposition has been building like the tide rolling in. But with our text this morning, you can say we've reached high tide. We've reached like full high tide. Last week, what do we see Jesus do? He heals a man who was crippled on the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath then declared it it is right to do good on the Sabbath. And to that, though, how did the Pharisees respond? Did they bow down and worship and give thanks and recognize his authority? No. Rather, it says that they began to conspire to kill him. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy so much that they resolved, like, our last card is just murder. He must die. And I'd say that's, that's pretty high tide. And you pair that with our text today, you see Christ's opposition, it's, it's assembled in full force. The leaders know Jesus is still too popular with the people, so they can't outright kill him yet. They first have to assassinate his character. They first have to bring him down a few pegs in the eyes of the people. And today we see them do that just like the most villainous way. They spread the slander that Jesus is an agent of Satan, that he works all of his power and wonders not by God but by the devil. This could not be further from the truth. This is the exact opposite of the truth. But it shows how far gone they were, that they were completely hardened in sin. And this culminates really in the connected passage, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus affirms that they have crossed over and committed what some have called an unpardonable sin. We will save that for a special treatment next week. But look, peak hardness of heart and rejection can already be found right here in verses 22 through 30. As before, this text begins with Jesus simply doing good. But his opponents respond in the worst possible way. To this, Jesus, too, responds. 
The slander has reached a level he just can't ignore. He has to, at the very least, testify of what is true about himself. But in so doing, Jesus reveals that there's actually a greater struggle going on here. His ultimate opponent is actually not the Pharisees or the religious leaders. His real opponent in his coming was their father, the devil. In a war going back to the Garden of Eden, Jesus always knew that he's in a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Yet we are reminded here in a powerful way that Satan's kingdom will fall and King Jesus will prevail, as will all who hope in him. So there is quite a lot for us to see in this passage this morning, another long text. To keep it as simple as possible, just kind of walk through together. That we can learn and discover what it reveals about this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. But beyond that, the deeper conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So let's do that. It begins with verses 22 through 24, which really set the scene. And so just just following along, we see verse 1, or rather point number 1, an unbelievable healing. This is how it starts in verse 22, an unbelievable healing. Read as we go, verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, this is the shortest healing account in Matthew's gospel. I'm just give like the bare minimum details. So a one-verse summary. But that's because Matthew wants to focus our attention on the controversy that follows. We've already seen many times over the miraculous power of Jesus at work. It's nothing new. That being said, we don't want to completely gloss over how unbelievable this healing was. There's a man here who is demon-possessed. It also says he was blind and mute. Now, there's, there's this undefined relationship between demon possession and disease in the New Testament. It is not the case that every sickness is caused by a demon, by no means, but sometimes there is a correlation here that appears to be the case. Back in chapter 9, verse 32, we saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed man who was mute. And back then, most people who were mute They had that condition because they really were deaf. They were deaf mutes. They're closed off to all sound in the world. They never learned to imitate the sound of speech, and they effectively became mute. Now, here in chapter 12, it's even worse. This man was mute, which means most likely he's also deaf. Then it adds, he's also blind, which is like the trifecta of suffering, deaf, mute, blind. Spurgeon colorfully said regarding this man, quote, the evil spirit had secured himself by stopping up the windows and the door of the soul, quote. Think about this poor man. Could he see Jesus? No. Could he hear him? Probably not. How could he even know about Jesus? He know anything. He was just left to suffer in a void of silence and darkness, cut off from the world of sound and color, He's not even able to cry out to Jesus. He's mute. Now, we know that's not the purpose of this text, but it is a, a perfect picture of our true condition before God. In sin, we are just as lost and blind and deaf before the voice of God. Even if he calls, we can't hear him being dead in sin. But 
We are quickly reminded here that the Savior's power can pry open blind eyes and unclog stopped ears. By his sovereign power and mercy, he can loosen lips to sing his praises. Here, just obviously someone, we don't even know who, brings this man to Jesus, and he proves he is willing and able to do just that. He heals this man. The context makes obvious that in this case, he did so by casting out this demon, which affected his healing. He spoke, he saw, his chains were broken, his eyes, ears, and tongue were set free, as I'm sure also was his heart, able to then just give praise to the Savior standing before him. Nick, we know that there's got to be so much more to this story, this man, his life, his backstory, but for now... All of that fades into the background, because in this instance, it's not about him. It's not even about the healing of Jesus. We've seen that. Matthew just sets the scene with this deliverance, but he really wants us to turn our eyes toward the, the dust-up that follows. And so we move into number two, an undeniable conclusion. Secondly, an undeniable conclusion. Verse 23 says, All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? You know, seeing this deliverance, it says the crowds were amazed. That word is existe me, which sometimes is used to refer to someone who's just out of their mind. You hear that? It means being just flabbergasted, astounded, beside oneself. You might remember blindness in the ancient world ranked like right up there with leprosy, the most hopeless conditions, and when they see a blind man or a leper healed so instantly and completely by Jesus, it it blows them away, rightly so. And as a result, verse 23, what were they saying? This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Son of David, it's a well-known messianic title. It's what the crowds will say of Jesus at his triumphal entry, and it's, it's what they're thinking of Jesus now, The form of the Greek, though, puts this as a question. They're wondering. They're unsure. Could this be the son of David? Now, here's the thing. That's the right conclusion. It's really the undeniable conclusion based on his words, his works. The miracles of Jesus spoke for themselves. The Messiah was promised to come with these signs and wonders, and, well, here's Jesus doing just that. Remember, it's just like the prophetic proof Jesus gave to John the Baptist back in Matthew 11, verse 5. He told him, look, you think I'm wondering if I'm the Messiah? The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. There's my calling card. What, What more does he have to do to show he is the promised Messiah? It's just like some Jews will understand later in John 7, 31, when they say of Jesus, Hey, when the Messiah comes, he'll not perform more signs than this man has, will he? It was crystal clear that Jesus was the Messiah. Then Why then are the people still unsure? Why can't they accept this undeniable conclusion? Well, that's because nothing else about Jesus met their messianic expectations. The Messiah to them was supposed to be a ruler. He's supposed to come with thrones and an army, chariots, and trumpets, soldiers. 
He will restore prominence to Israel and subdue the nations. Like Jesus does not fit that bill at all. He was meek and unassuming. And he's surrounded by this ragtag group of uneducated disciples. Like none of them were important people. They had no clout. You think of wealthy, powerful people today, all throughout history, but how do they present themselves? They often dress in fine clothing, wear the most expensive jewelry. Today have nice cars, surrounded by a high-class entourage. That was not Jesus at all. If you didn't know who he was, you would not think he was important. We know, like, if Jesus did not teach, preach, and heal people, he would have gone entirely unnoticed. We can say that because that's literally what happened to him the first 30 years of his life. Like, you're, you're just the carpenter's son. How can the Messiah be that ordinary? So you can see why people had doubts. And clearly, though, now his signs and wonders testify he, he's anything but ordinary. But to the people, nothing else about him screamed son of David in their mind. If only they knew the scriptures, they would have got that right, but, but they didn't. I tell you what, though, I think that people could have been won over. I firmly believe that the, at the end of the day, the only thing keeping the people from accepting Jesus as the Messiah wholesale was the lack of endorsement by the religious leaders. If that one domino fell, I think all the people would have just happily fallen right in line. These leaders had so much influence and authority over the people. If they had just come out and affirmed Jesus is the Christ, now I'm certain the people would have fully believed in him. But, you know, that's not what happened. Just the opposite. They, they came out. Anyone even suggesting Jesus is the Christ has to be silenced and suppressed. That thought has to be crushed. We've seen the religious leaders reject Jesus as the son of David and start to oppose him. But now, as we said, it's going to take a pretty nasty, slanderous turn. And so we find number three, an unthinkable slander. Verse 24 an unthinkable slander. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Pharisees know what the people are saying and thinking about Jesus, namely that he might be the son of David, and that put them into a panic. <clears throat> the parallel in Mark 3.22 tells us that actually at this time, a group of scribes had come from Jerusalem to check Jesus out. Remember, scribes, that's a profession. Pharisees was a sect of Jews. So most of the scribes were Pharisees. We learned earlier that the religious leaders basically launched like a formal investigation into Jesus, trying to figure out, like, who is this guy? What's he teaching? What do we make of these miracles? And then most important, is he with us or against us? The scribes and Pharisees were often with Jesus, not, not to learn, just to keep an eye on him, critical eyes. But by now, that investigation has concluded. They've, they've seen everything they need to see, and they've handed in their, their verdict, like that Jesus is not good for business. You kind of think of the Pharisees like this big corporation at the time. They had all the power and authority. They're like a religious monopoly over the Jews. But then out of nowhere comes this startup Jesus 
on the scene. He's skyrocketed in popularity. He's gaining more and more religious market share. Their stock is plummeting, and so they panic. Murders have been committed with less motive. But Jesus, in their mind, he could not be the Messiah, but he's not on their side. So, of course, he can't be the Messiah. And worse yet, he actually opposed them. He called them out. He made them look foolish in the eyes of the people. Jesus was a threat to their power, and so he had to be stopped. And so they've, they've already pivoted from an investigation to a smear campaign. We already saw back in verse 14 how the Pharisees begin to plot to kill him. But they must bide their time and kill his influence first. They have to destroy Christ's character, and here we're learning one of their main tactics. It's really an unthinkable slander that Jesus casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, if you're wondering, yes, Beelzebul is a reference to Satan. Jesus proves that in the very next verse. This title uh, derives from Baal Zebu, which means the, the prince of Baal, who was a god worshipped in the city of Ekron nearby. The Hebrews probably made a mocking alteration of this from Baal Zebu to, to Baal Zebub, which in turn means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. And they, they did that in a way to mock this false god. But either way, by the time of Jesus, this t- <clears throat> title became a well-known description of the prince, the ruler of demons, Satan himself. So their opposition to Jesus has become so extreme that they claim he's possessed by Satan. Now here's Jesus, God incarnate, and they're saying he's actually Satan incarnate, more or less. Instead of seeing him as the son of God, they say he's the child of Satan. I mean, what, what an attack on his, his person to link him with Satan, to call evil, or rather to call good evil. And then what an attack on his work he casts out demons by the rulers, uh, ruler of the demons. You notice the scribes and Pharisees, they never once denied the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus. They couldn't. They never said, well, his miracles are fake. Never said that. It was just too undeniable. I mean, this, here's a blind and mute man who's just healed. They saw it. Everybody saw it. It's not in question. The leaders knew there was no denying his power and his works and so their only recourse was to discredit the source of his power. He heals, he delivers, but it's not from God. It's from the devil. This just shows you how far a hardened heart will go to explain away the truth and power of God. No amount of miracles will make anyone believe. And the same is still true today. No amount of proofs or evidence will make someone believe in the Lord. It's just like Jesus said in Luke 16.31. They have the scriptures. If a person does not listen to scripture, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. These leaders, they knew the scriptures, and they saw all the signs of Jesus, but they were not persuaded. They still did not believe. They were hardened, and now they've turned to slander. Now, this is not actually the first time they spread this slander. We, we saw it reference you know, back in Mark 9.34. Just in passing, it says the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. 
And then later in Mark, Mark, uh, Mark, Matthew 10, rather, I'm not sure if I said Mark, I meant Matthew 9:34. And then later in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending the 12 out to preach, and he, he warns them, like, what to expect, what kind of treatment. Matthew 10:25. He says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? They're going to say that about you too. This refrain gets repeated later. Jesus is in Jerusalem. John 8, 48, some Jews say to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is slander. It was like a snowball. It kept building and gaining momentum as it, as it went on. It needed to be stopped. At the very least, the truth needed to be made known, had to be testified. And so far, we've not seen Jesus engage with their slander. We will never see him stoop to their level, but the time has come to declare the truth and set the record straight, and that's what Jesus does in the rest of this passage. Verse 25 says, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, In this instance, the scribes and Pharisees were slandering Jesus behind his back. They're probably on the fringe of this crowd, slithering around, poisoning what everyone thought about Jesus as he healed this man. But Jesus now, he goes to them. He confronts them to their face. He knows their thoughts. He knows what they've been saying. And I don't even think supernatural knowledge was required to detect the knives they were throwing with their eyes. But it's time to respond, and so what follows in the rest of this passage is Christ's response. It's a threefold rebuttal to their false accusation. We, we saw the same thing unfold at the beginning of Matthew 12. The Pharisees there made this false accusation Jesus was unlawful because his disciples were gleaning grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded. He gave a fourfold rebuttal to that false accusation. Set the record straight put them in their place. And here he's going to do the same thing to this next false accusation. He's giving a testimony that is both equally condemning to his opponents as it is instructive to his followers. That's us. So a lot to learn here. So we're going to switch gears here, kind of like the second half, and transition now to this threefold rebuttal and what it says about his opposition, this threefold rebuttal. So the first part, Their accusation is irrational. His first response to their false accusation. Their accusation is irrational. Verse 25 again. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And Christ's first rebuttal is that their accusation just completely irrational. Jesus expresses this truism that needs little explanation. It's just so self-evident. From a kingdom to a city to a house, any internal division spells the end. It will not stand. When a nation fights amongst itself, it, it opens up all these cracks and fissures, which outside opponents will then quickly take advantage of. That kingdom won't last long. And from the dawn of the Roman Republic, the Roman army was fear. There's just a dominant 
military force. They marched over all their enemies. None could stand in their way. Like, who could contend with the mighty Roman legion? And so they kept expanding. They feared no kingdom. Nothing could stand in their way. But the Romans did have one fear, civil war. This republic was becoming massive. It's spanning the Mediterranean now. It's becoming hard to manage. And there are no formidable foes left. Like, they conquered everybody. There's no horizon for them. No formidable kingdom left. But they knew this kingdom could come tumbling down due to internal strife. Could buckle from the inside. That's basically what happened the first time with Caesar's civil war. It was a power play between Caesar and Pompey. Caesar emerged victorious, but that meant the end of the Roman Republic. It it ended. It fell. And what took its place right thereafter was the the dictatorial Roman Empire, which is much different. Now, that said, Jesus, he's not teaching here about geopolitics. His point is about Satan. Everyone understood that demons were forces of Satan, fallen angels under his command. To suggest, therefore, that Jesus was empowered by Satan, what does that say about his activity of casting out demons? It's the same as saying, Satan casts out Satan, verse 26. That would be Satan opposing his own forces, undermining his own work, as if he was divided against himself. But that's ludicrous. Satan is wicked, but he's no dummy. Like being the highest angel God created He probably is the most intelligent being God created. And so by no means would he hinder his own demons from fulfilling his wishes, accomplishing his purposes. They have joined him in opposing God's kingdom. And he's not going to stop them. Look, you get this. Logically, it's absurd. No No one breaks down his own empire. And certainly, sadly so, not Satan who is so bent on usurping God's kingdom. So first, Jesus argues that their accusation is just completely irrational. And second, he argues it's inconsistent. Secondly, their accusation is inconsistent. Carrying into verse 27. He says, If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So for his second rebuttal, he shows how inconsistent their accusation is. What he's saying is that if casting out demons really is a demonic activity, then why don't the Pharisees criticize their own disciples for doing the same thing? Now, a little background will help make sense of this. In Christ's day, there were some Jews who claimed to be able to cast out demons. If you go back to Matthew 7, or if you remember back in Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of false believers on the day of judgment, where they're being cast out of the kingdom, even though they thought they were saved, and they appeal to their deeds as proof, though they fall short. And remember what they said. Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons? And in your name, perform many miracles. Yet they were characterized by disobedience, and he cast them away from his presence. But the point is, that little reference, many believed that they were doing this work, casting out demons. The Jews understood evil spirits existed, and some of them claimed to be able to get rid of them. 
But at the time, Jewish exorcism was really about gimmicks. They relied heavily on trinkets, special objects, as well as, you might say, magical incantations. In Acts chapter 19, we learn of, there's a little story about a group of Jewish exorcists. They're the seven sons of Siva. And they were not Christians, but they started using the name of Jesus, believing it was basically a, a more effective incantation to cast out demons and did not work out so well for them. But also the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us about a, a Jewish exorcist named Eleazar. And one time he encountered a demon-possessed man, so he took a root of a special plant, he put it in a ring, and he put that ring to the nose of the demon-possessed man. And then Eleazar claimed to pull the demon out through the nostrils of the man. He then told the demon not to return and recited some incantations. And also to, to persuade spectators that Eliezer really had this power, he would set up a cup of water a little ways away, and then he would command the demon to overturn it on his way out to prove that he had really left the man. Anyway, there, there was really a, a subculture of Jewish exorcism in the day of Jesus. Now, we never once see Jesus endorsing this or promoting their efforts as if they were legitimate, but he does recognize their activity. And here in verse 27, he's not commenting on the veracity of their claims, but he is showing the Pharisees their own inconsistency because many of these self-proclaimed exorcists were their disciples. You can imagine that whenever one of these Jewish exorcists claimed to cast out a demon, the Pharisees would have been in approval. Like, hey, that, that's my disciple. That's my pupil. But you can discern now the point Jesus is making. Just suppose they're right for the sake of argument. Jesus really is casting out demons by Beelzebul. Well, then what does that say about their own sons or disciples? I mean, surely the Pharisees would never claim their pupils were empowered by the devil. But what's the difference? I mean, they're claiming to do the same thing Jesus was doing. They're casting out demons. Demon, Jesus was casting out demons. What's the difference? So Jesus adds in verse 27, he says, for this reason, they will be your judges. In other words, their own sons will prove them wrong. Their disciples would most definitely testify that, that the work of casting out demons, of course, that's not a work of the devil. Of course, that's a work of God. Everyone knew that. So how then could they not judge their masters, the Pharisees, for attributing to Satan what everybody knew was the work of God? casting out demons. It was such a disingenuous claim. All, everyone knew all Jesus did was go around, teach God's word, heal people, deliver captives. And what else about him seemed satanic? And I was playing for all to see. Their claim is just inconsistent. Their accusation, it's irrational, it's inconsistent. But by far the worst of it all is the third response. Their accusation is inverted. Their accusation is inverted. By this, I mean their false accusation was like the exact opposite of the truth. Literally the opposite of what Jesus was doing and by what power. And so leading people to believe a complete, diametrically opposed falsehoods about Jesus. So in the next three verses, though, Jesus makes some huge claims clarifying his work 
and what his work really says about him. Let's continue walking through this. Verse 28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Once again, the Pharisees, they never denied Jesus cast out demons. Like, no, he, he certainly did. But Jesus here affirms, he did so not by an evil spirit, definitely not by Satan's spirit. So then by what spirit, by what power did he cast out demons? The answer is the spirit of God. Not an unholy spirit, but rather the Holy Spirit. Now, for Jesus to say this comes with its own big implications. First, to say that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. It's another way of saying he is the Son of David. He is the Messiah. And wasn't this literally the, the prophesied calling card of the Messiah, that he would heal and deliver people as a foretaste of his salvation, all by the power of the Spirit? You don't have to turn there, but over in Luke 4, Jesus is in Galilee. It's Sabbath. He attends synagogue that day. The time comes for someone to read the scripture. So he stands up, they open the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus himself reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, which says this. Jesus read, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And when he finished, Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a pretty bold claim. But the point is, the very activity of Jesus they claimed came from Satan was actually the proof he came from God. And if Jesus really was the the spirit-anointed Messiah working in power, that had its own implications, which Jesus himself says. What does he say? says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And speaking of the Messiah, what else did God promise of this figure? We also said that he will be king. Go back to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That God promised he would raise up from David a son of David, and he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jeremiah 23, this righteous branch would rule as king. When Jesus comes, he's that king. Like the Magi way back in Matthew 2, they they got that right, wondering, hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Jesus was that king. Beyond that, he's king of kings. And the connection is that with the coming of the king, there is a coming of his kingdom. Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, throughout church history, I believe... Many people have made one of two errors concerning how they understand the kingdom of God. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. Some have believed that the kingdom is almost entirely spiritual and therefore it's present. The kingdom is now. We are living in the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. Others, however, have believed the kingdom is almost entirely physical and political and therefore future. You can't in any meaningful sense speak of the kingdom being a present reality right now. It it awaits the second coming and the millennium. But I don't believe either of these extremes capture the, the breadth of New Testament teaching. Matthew's gospel itself 
teaches this tension between the already and the not yet sides of God's kingdom rule. We see Jesus preaching on the one hand, the kingdom is near. But on the other hand, we see him teach his disciples how to pray. Future tense, your kingdom come. With the coming of Christ, the king, and that includes his death, resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of the Father, you have to acknowledge that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom rule. He is now ruling spiritually in the hearts of his people, and the church on earth is the latest and greatest expression of his rule. But at the same time, you also have to acknowledge that there is still a future and full dimension to this kingdom rule, that we're still left awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. And this is why everywhere the New Testament places our ultimate hope in Christ's return. In this age, God's kingdom rule will grow and expand, while at the same time being oppressed and persecuted. We're going to learn a lot about that in all the kingdom parables of the next chapter, Matthew 13. But it's not until the king returns that God's people will enter into the fullness of kingdom glory. Just think about this. Like, what is wrong with this world, this creation, since the fall? You boil it down to sin, Satan, and death, right? Death is our biggest problem, but where did death come from? It came from sin. The wages of sin is death. Our, our sin problem has killed us. But where did sin come from? In a sense, you could say it came from Satan, the tempter. Without his temptation, none of this would have happened. But it did happen. Though under God's sovereign will, Satan has held this world captive in death. But when Jesus, the king, came the first time, he did something about our sin, Satan, and death problem, didn't he? What did he do? By his own death and resurrection, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. Hebrews 2, 14, and 15 says that Jesus, through, or that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And he did so by paying for their sins. And now those who repent and believe in him, they partake of his salvation. They're forgiven of their sins. They're loosed from Satan, and they're granted eternal life. It's all very good news, and these are all benefits of Christ's kingly rule. But that's not the end of the story. In this age, even now, as Christians, even after Jesus has done all this, we still sin. Satan still prowls, and we're still going to die. You see, we don't see, realize the full hope given in Scripture. We're looking for a kingdom where sin, Satan, and death are no more. That stage of the kingdom begins when the Lord returns. This is what all heaven looked forward to in connection to the Lord's second coming, captured in Revelation 11.15. Listen to this, Revelation 11.15, as they anticipate his coming. It says, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That happens when he returns. For now, though, getting back to Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees were missing the nearness of the kingdom in the presence of the king. 
If you miss the king, you miss the kingdom entirely. And they were headed down that road. Really worse, they were actively opposing the king. They had aligned themselves with Satan's kingdom. That is not something you want to do. You don't want to be on the losing side. And for sure, Satan's kingdom is the losing side. For his power is no match for Christ's power. And that's what we see in the next verse, verse 29. He continues. He says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So here's another big claim. The Pharisees acted that, you know, on the chessboard of the world, Jesus, he's just Satan's pawn. But in reality, Jesus is the king, and he displays how effortlessly he can checkmate the devil. That Satan is no match for his power. He's, he's divine. And by the context, it's not hard to understand this analogy. The strong man is the devil. His house is this world. And his property are those held under his power. Most directly, this speaks of those who are demon-oppressed. But broadly, it could include all humanity, since all the lost are trapped under the prince of the power of the air. Recall, 2 Timothy 2.26 describes all the lost as ensnared by the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we're, we're captive, and we're not strong enough to free ourselves. Our only hope is rescue. But if someone's going to rescue us, they've got to do something about our captor first. Like thieves planning to rob a house, they, they have to first do something about the owner, especially if he's a, a well-armed, strong man. You have to bind him. Well, Christ comes as the real strong man, and with every exorcism, he was proving that at will he can enter Satan's domain, this world, bind him, nullify his power, and set captives free. Remember, Matthew 4, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus encounters the devil in the wilderness at his temptation. One of those temptations looked like this, Matthew 4, verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. He realized Satan was speaking as if all the kingdoms of the world belonged to him. They were his to give. In a sense, that's true. He stole them from God, becoming effectively the God of this world. This is a rebellion God has tolerated for millennia for his much bigger purposes. But the time came for him to send forth his kingly son to reclaim this world for his kingdom. And what, do you think Jesus is so weak that he must kiss Satan's ring to gain dominion of the world and its kingdoms? No, even though Satan is the most powerful being God created as the archangel, still the Lord Jesus can bind him. Just a word. And once again, what Jesus is saying is he demonstrates that power and authority every time he casts out a demon. Did you ever once break a sweat casting out a demon, have a hard time? The disciples had a hard time. Jesus never had a hard time. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, as Christians, presently to be on the alert. It says, for our adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour we're called to be on the alert, for the evil one can still tempt us and stumble us in sin. 
But you need not fear the devil any longer or his power. For, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Instead, it says we are to resist him. How do we do that? It says you resist him firm in your faith. That's it. Just, just cling to Christ and his truth, and the father of lies has no power over you. We know that the Lord Jesus won't bind the devil for good until his return. Look, even in verse 26, Jesus clearly viewed Satan's kingdom as alive and well. He's still prowling. But and that's why we must still be on guard against the devil and his schemes, Ephesians 6. But as we stand firm in Christ and his word, you need not fear. His power over you is nothing. Well, to finish up now, Jesus makes one last point in his defense, at least for now, with, with some final implications for those who reject him and those who follow. One more verse, verse 30. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus finishes his thought, at least for our sake this morning, and with a final big claim, essentially declares like there's no neutrality. Ever since the fall, there have been these two kingdoms, two domains at odds with one another, that of Satan, that of God. They are mutually exclusive as are their citizens, meaning everybody on the planet belongs to one kingdom or the other. There's no exceptions. And all those who don't belong to God, by definition, belong to the evil one. And they will perish with him. And we finish with a serious warning. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. This last word, Jesus seems to be turning his attention back to the crowds. They were spectators in this sparring match between Jesus and the Pharisees. But look, before God, there are no spectators allowed, no fence sitters. The crowd, remember, they just saw the clear sign again, Jesus is the Messiah. And they wondered about it, but they're still unsure. That doesn't fly. That's not enough. You need to make up your mind. But understand that if you are not actively following Jesus, if you're not actively with him, you're still against him. Jesus here and elsewhere draws this extremely sharp line in the sand. And it doesn't matter if you are six inches on the wrong side of the line or six miles on the wrong side of the line. Eternal judgment still awaits. What that means is if all these crowd members don't choose soon and choose correctly, they're going to end up in the same place as these scribes and Pharisees, which is where? It's what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 41, that they'll be sent into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus said. This strong warning remains for all today. There are many people, they don't hate Jesus. They don't vehemently deny him. They would not say he's of the devil, but at the same time, they don't follow him. You need to know that their indifference toward Jesus is just as damning. To not follow Jesus as Lord by faith is to remain in the kingdom of Satan, which will fall. And if there might be any here this morning who have not made up your minds about Jesus, I would certainly urge you to, to choose wisely, choose well, choose today, and choose Jesus. You want to be with him, not against him, both when he returns and right now, for you don't know which days your last, and you're with him only by one way or rather only one way, and that is by faith. You're, you must turn from your sinful ways 
Call upon him to open your eyes, to cleanse you, to forgive you. He will, and he will bring you into his kingdom. He will transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, Colossians 1. But this is an equally good reminder for believers who have trusted in Jesus. We follow him, but we know how sometimes double-minded we can still be. But be purified in your zeal for the Lord. Double down in your allegiance to him. We all know so many of the earthly things we chase and obsess over, they, they just don't matter. Like Compared to this picture of this eternal kingdom, how much of our pursuits that we spend so much energy on, they're just going to burn. They mean nothing eternally. That doesn't mean we just forsake everything, go live in a monastery, but it does mean we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It does mean we should walk as citizens of heaven. It does mean that since we have our hope fixed on Christ's return, we should purify ourselves just as he is pure. This Jesus will return, and with him, his eternal kingdom which all who have loved his appearing will enter. But for now, though, we know there remains two kingdoms, that of God, that of Satan. They're completely opposite, but we never said they're completely equal. They're not equal. God reigns supreme always. The kingdom of Satan will easily fall when Christ the victor returns. And so let us just place all of our confidence in him and all of life. Your confidence needs to be all in Christ. You might see things in this world spiral out of control. You might see the schemes of the devil succeed. You might see the love of men grow cold. You might see evil men proceeding from bad to worse. In reality, you can see this in every generation. Whatever you see, know that you will eventually see Christ the King coming in the clouds of heaven to reign and rule. And so like Psalm 2 says, while the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed, we know that God will install his king upon Zion. And so let us even now, like Psalm 2 concludes, it says, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. By faith and confidence, with joy, let's take refuge in this Christ, our King. Let's pray to him now. Our Father in heaven, in Christ, our Savior, our King. And the theme of this morning, we, we give you more thanks for, for all that you are. We thank you for opening our eyes. We were just as deaf and dumb, blind, and mute. This poor man we encountered this morning. Spiritually, we were worse off, more hopeless, nothing we could do to free ourselves. Our enemies of sin, Satan, and death had effectively sealed us to an eternal doom. But we were reminded of the merciful God who sent a merciful Savior by the power of a merciful spirit to, to awaken the dead, to open the blind, to set free captives. That was us all here who, who call upon Jesus, who follow him with an earnest faith. And so we have to give thanks every day. That's enough for us to, to give thanks every day. And because of that, to smile every day, to rejoice every day. We have Christ the King. We are with him. By his grace, we're on his side. And we certainly know greater is he now who is with us than he who is in the world. 
We don't need to live in fear, but rather boldness, confidence, not in self, but in Christ, who richly dwells within us. We always pray these times together that you convict those who maybe do not believe, who have not yet yielded. Maybe they're unsure, like these people in the crowd, wondering, is Jesus really the way, the truth, the life? Is this true? We just pray you open their eyes to see and behold the Son. It's the only way. We may show them love and patience, but may they may believe today, for we not know when the last day comes. So help us all walk wisely now, walk rightly. We live as citizens of this heavenly eternal kingdom, which is coming while we represent Christ's kingdom now in the church to the watching world. Be with us so we can ponder these things, but we walk wisely, rightly, and with thanksgiving for Christ our Savior and King always. In his name we pray. Amen.